0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So we are beginning today um, a new series in the book of James, and we're calling it Practical Faith. Um, and what we're going to be doing is talking about belief, but how belief works itself out in our everyday lives. That's really what James is all about. And so um, what I wanted to do uh, this afternoon to this weekend, um, as we're starting this whole thing, is talk about belief. And what I really wanted to do um, to kind of get us kicked off in all of this is to have us do something we don't do very often around here. In fact, we have never done it around here. That qualifies for we don't do very often around here. Um, I'm going to have you stand, if you would, And we're going to put up on the screen something called, now would be the time to stand. Yes, okay. I know you just sat down, okay. We're going to put up on the screen something called the Apostles' Creed. Now, some of you might have been raised in a church and you did this every Sunday. Some of you have never seen this before in your life. Um, but these are the essentials of the Christian faith. These are the things. It's centuries old. This is like 2,000 years old. Um, the beliefs that, that are central and core to the Christian faith. And so I thought since we're going to be talking about faith and about belief, um, that's what we're going to start. So what I'd like you to do is to read this out loud with me, if you would. This is what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I couldn't help but notice when we got to that Holy Catholic Church part, everybody just got a little bit softer. Okay, it's like, okay, are we joining that denomination? Are things changing around here? Okay, what that means literally is the universal church. We're not becoming a Roman Catholic church, okay? It just means that it's the church universal, the body of believers around the world all through history, okay? That's what the Catholic church is really, okay? So when we say that, that's what we mean. Now, the reason I had us recite that is that those are the faiths that we as Christians have professed for 2,000 years, and I want to do from that, pose this question. How is it that there can be two people who can recite those, those truths and affirm those faiths and those beliefs, and yet one of them, one of them is cheerful, self-giving, serving of others, generous, and generally a joy to be around. And another one who would re- recite those very same truths and affirm those exact same beliefs is Angry, judgmental, selfish and stingy, and generally miserable to be around. How can two people who would affirm those same truths live such different lives? Or to put it another way, if faith is so important, if faith is so transformational, why does it not seem to work itself out in everyday lives? Or even maybe more personally, why does it not seem to work itself out consistently in my own life? That's a really big question. Because when we talk about faith and when we talk about belief, we need to understand what it is that we're talking about. Um, philosopher Michael Novak, an author, wrote a book called Belief and Unbelief. And he said, you know, when it comes to belief or or convictions or faith, it can generally be broken down into three different categories. And this is kind of what he postulates. There are what we could call public convictions. Public convictions are the things that I don't necessarily believe, but I want other people to think I believe. So an example of that would be like a politician, (laughs) okay? Depending on the audience can change their positions or soften their words or change things a little bit because they just want people to buy in and vote for them. Don't necessarily believe it, but they want you to believe that you believe it, okay? Make sense? Those are what he calls public convictions. Now there's another type of faith. He calls these things private convictions. Private convictions are the things that I truly sincerely think I believe, but when it comes down to my actions and behaviors and attitudes, it doesn't quite bear itself out. Give me an example of that. Uh, From scripture, actually, we looked at this last week, the apostle Peter. Um, The night that Jesus warned him that he was going to betray him, Peter declared, Lord, even if all others desert you, I will never desert you. Even if I have to die for you, I will never give you up. Now, does anybody here believe that he sincerely believed that and felt that to be true when he said it? Yeah, absolutely. But when Jesus was arrested and on trial and he's hanging out around the fire and he's accused of being one of Jesus' followers, he denies Jesus three times. In other words, he thought he believed that. He sincerely believed he believed it. But when it came right down to it, his actions betrayed the truth. He didn't really believe it. Okay? Those are private convictions. Another one. I sincerely believe that what Jesus teaches about turning the other cheek is a good idea. It's the right way to live. But don't you dare cut in front of me in line. All right? Okay? Or, or I believe that lying is a sin. Lying is a bad thing. I te- taught my children growing up not to lie. Um, I don't want to do business with a liar. I don't want to be married to a liar. I don't want to be around people who lie and that they're not untrustworthy. But if it'll get me out of a ticket, I might be willing to stretch the truth a little bit. Okay? Does that make sense? Those are what you call private convictions. I sincerely Think that I believe those things, but when it comes right down to it, my actions don't bear it out. And then there is a third category that he calls core convictions. Core convictions are what we truly believe. And our core convictions are revealed by our behavior or by our actions. You will never violate your core conviction. Because it's basically how you look at life. It's something so ingrained in you that you will always act with consistency about it. Because it's a core conviction. That's what makes the difference. Now, let me ask you. How many in this room would be willing to admit, because confession is good for the soul... How we would be willing to admit in the last year that you either stretched the truth, embellished the truth, or maybe didn't quite reveal the whole truth to save yourself from an embarrassing situation? Anybody in that category? Okay. For those of you who are not raising your hands, you're doing it right now. All right? Okay. That's the difference between private convictions and core convictions. Private convictions, we, we think we believe it. But when it comes right down to our behavior and our actions, our truly, our core convictions reveal that is not the case. Your core convictions are always revealed by your behavior and by your actions. And by the way, that's why baptism is such an important thing, because baptism is an act. It is is acting out on what I say I believe. I've made a decision to follow Christ with the rest of my life. But when I get baptized, I am making a public declaration of that. I am saying, um, I I may not know where it's going to lead me. I'm not sure how it's going to work itself out all in my life. But I am determined to follow Christ with the rest of my life. And this act, this behavior, this action is acting out what I say has happened on the inside. And that's why we make such a big deal around baptism. Because that's what it is. It's an action. It is something that is saying, this is becoming a core conviction for me. Now, core convictions is what the book of James is really all about. That's what James is all about. If you get nothing else out of this message, what James' whole book and whole writing is all about, having those things that we say we believe or we think we believe become truly what we believe. That they become not just our public convictions or our private convictions, But our core convictions. And and I'll tell you that because a lot of times people think that that Paul the Apostle Paul and James are at odds. Because Paul talks about that we are saved by faith, by grace, by faith alone, in God's grace. And it's faith alone, and that's all. And then James comes along, and he says, but your faith without works is dead. And it sounds like they're at odds with each other, and they disagree with each other, but they're not. They're actually talking about the same thing from different perspectives. James is saying what you think you believe and what you say you believe now, he says, it's got to become what you truly believe. And that's going to show itself out by your behavior. And so James, and and by the way, I encourage you over the next, for the next seven weeks, we're going to be going through the book of James, read through it. And I'm going to warn you uh, 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 ahead of time that sometimes as you read through James, it feels like he, he jumps all over the place. He talks about this, then he talks about that, then he talks about the other. It's almost like he's got ADD, you know, he just keeps moving around topic of talk. What he's doing is he's talking about, this is how it works itself out in your relationships, in your finances, in how you treat people, in how you plan for your future, In how you deal with difficulties, this is how it works out. This is how your public convictions and your private convictions become core convictions. And he jumps right into it in chapter 1 with two things that every one of us in this room are familiar with. You don't have to be a Christ follower. You don't have to be a God believer to be familiar with trials and temptations. Because everybody goes through those. And what he's saying here as we get into this is he's saying, okay, here's what you need to understand about developing a core conviction. This is how it gets beyond what you say or what you think to what you truly believe. And it happens in the experiences of life. So he says there's some things you need to know about trials. There's some things you need to know about temptation. And what you really need to understand is behind the scenes, what it's really all about is your strength and your faith in the character of God. So that's what we're going to go today. All right. So you're with me? Buckle on your seatbelts. Here we go. James chapter 1. This is the way he writes it. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is, a double, is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Skip on down to verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. James says, here's what you need to know in developing core convictions. You need to know something about trials and adversity. What you need to know is your faith is going to be refined through adversity. That's part of the refining process. That's how it works in our life. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. You might on the outline there, circle the word whenever, because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it's going to happen. I've said it many times, the three truths about adversity and difficulties is you're either right in the middle of one, you're just coming out of one, or you're about to head into one. It's just a part of life. Life has its ups and downs, its highs and lows. It's not all highs, it's not all lows. Some have more highs than others, some have more lows than others, but everybody goes through this roller coaster that we sometimes call life. And what James is saying is that's a part of life. But what happens is you're going along through life and as long as everything's good, life is good, everything's working out, your bills are all being paid, everybody's happy, and you know, school's going great, your job's going great, and everything, as long as everything's going good, it's easy to believe that God is good and He's looking out for you. And then a crisis hits, or an adversity comes up, or some unexpected bad news hits you, and what it does is it shakes you. And what it's shaking is those private convictions because you believe God is good and you believe he cares about you and you believe he's interested in your life but when you hit those down times all of a sudden it makes you think I'm not so sure anymore if God loves me why is this happening to me if God's watching out for me why is I'm why am I going through this and that's what's happening is it's, it's shaking that private conviction and going to make a decision. In through this, you're going to make a decision whether or not that becomes a core conviction. Because it's shaking what you think you believe. And so he says, be joyful. Consider it pure joy whenever you face these trials. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go through difficulties, joy is not the thing I'm thinking at the time. But he says, no, consider it joy. Why? Because something's going on here. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. What he's saying is that when you go through difficulties, when you face adversity, it sets in motion a spiritual dynamic. And this is what it looks like. You are being tested and that testing, if you go through that, is going to produce in you perseverance or endurance. And as you go through life and you learn that life of endurance and that life of of persevering, what it's going to lead to eventually is spiritual maturity. That you're going to have a much more mature outlook on life. He says, so don't be happy about the difficulty you're going through, but be happy about what it's about to produce in you. That God is at work even in those times when it seems like he is not. How many are familiar with the footprints? Poem. Anybody ever? Okay, most of you have. Some of you don't. If you haven't, it's a, it's a poem. And it's about a guy. I dreamed that I walked. I looked back on my life walking along a seashore. And there were two sets of prints walking along in the sand. And then yet I noticed at times there was only one set of prints. And I asked God, Lord, where were you when I needed you the most? It seems like there was only one set of put, footprints there. Where were you when I needed you the most? And the answer came from the Lord When you see that one set of footprints, it's because that's where I carried you. Isn't that a wonderful thought? It's a bit schmaltzy, but you know, it's kind of a nice thought, okay? Yeah, God was carrying me through that. So um, this week, actually on Friday afternoon, I got an email from a friend, um, and we've kind of had joked about that little poem um, before. Sent me this email, and in it was a cartoon. And the first panel of the cartoon was that footprints thing, and it's the Lord talking to the person. He says, where that's one set of footprints, that's where I carried you, and then in the second frame is this one, and that long groove, that's where I dragged you kicking and screaming, <laughs> 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 and I emailed her back. I said, that is so funny, and it is so true, because <laughs> more often than not, that's what we're doing, We're kicking and screaming through this thing. We don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. And what James is saying, no, don't don't be surprised by it. But understand, God's going to do something in the middle of this. There's something going to be produced in you. Those public and private convictions, if you handle it right, are going to develop to core convictions. And to understand that, you need to step back and take it from God's perspective. And that requires wisdom. That's In the Bible, when the Bible talks about wisdom, it's understanding things from God's perspective. And so he says, listen, if you're in the middle of all of that, what you need more than anything else is wisdom. And if you lack wisdom, you should ask God. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Now, I don't know about you. Again, when I'm going through that, the last thing I'm asking for is wisdom. Mostly what I'm asking for is relief. God, take this away. God, work this out. God, please heal. God, whatever it is, God, change these circumstances. And James says, yeah, God gives us the freedom and he encourages us to ask. And we've got the freedom to pray for healing and, and all of these things. But he says, also, in long of everything else, what you really need is wisdom. What you really need is to understand, God, what are you doing here? What is it that I need to learn through this circumstance? Where do I need to grow? What needs to change in me? See, that's looking at it from God's perspective. And that's how it becomes a core conviction. Because you learn endurance that even when it doesn't make sense and you can't figure it out, that God is still with you. Sometimes dragging you, kicking and screaming. But God is with you. He says, that's what you need to understand. And when you do, when you pray that, be willing to change. He says, pray this, but pray it, don't doubting. Because the person that doubts, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is is double-minded and unstable in all they do. In other words, what he's saying, when you pray for wisdom, when you ask for God's insight, when you ask for um, God's direction, when you want to understand what God's doing in your life, when you pray that prayer, be willing to change. Be willing to take his direction. Be willing to accept what he's trying to teach you. Because if you pray that prayer and you ask for that understanding, you ask for that direction, you ask for that wisdom, but you're not willing to follow through on it, it doesn't work that way. It that's just double-minded. That's un- that just leads to instability. It says when you're going through it, pray and ask God for direction and wisdom and, and, and guidance through all of it. But when you receive his guidance, because he's going to give it to you, make sure you stay with him. Make sure you follow it. Because that's how you develop a core conviction. The second thing he talks about is temptation. He says there's something else you need to understand. That's what you need to understand about trials and adversity. Here's what you need to understand about temptation. In temptation, your faith is being challenged. Your faith is challenged during temptation. Now let me give you a definition of temptation. Temptation is trying to meet a legitimate need or a legitimate desire in an illegitimate or irresponsible or improper way. Okay, that was a long definition. Let me give it to you again. Okay. Temptation is trying to meet a legitimate need or a legitimate desire in an illegitimate, improper, or irresponsible way. In other words, at its deepest level, it has to do with trust. See, because I have financial needs i have relational needs i have intimacy needs i have i have desires and goals and aspirations and all of these things and what happens is if i don't think that god is meeting those needs or filling those desires or filling that hunger in the way that i think he ought to be doing it in the timing that i think he ought to be doing it then what i'm tempted to do is to take matters into my own hands And in essence, what I'm saying when I succumb to temptation is I'm saying, God, you can't be trusted because you're not acting on my behalf and you're not taking care of my needs and you're not fulfilling my desires and you're not satisfying these appetites the way that I want you to do it or in the timing that I want you to do it. So God, since I can't trust you, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to do it my way on my terms in my timing. That at the bottom line is what's really at stake in temptation. And, And that goes all the way back. To Genesis chapter 3 Temptation comes down to this belief That somehow God is holding out on me That was a temptation that came to Eve That's what the serpent said God God knows That if you eat of that tree You're going to be like him And he doesn't want you to become like him That's why he told you not to eat from that tree See and that's really at the heart Of every temptation That's really at the heart of it, the sense that God is holding out on me, that God's not taking care of me, that he really is not good, and he isn't interested in me. And since he's not meeting my needs or my desires in the way that I think he should, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Every time you do that, what you are doing is you are are doubting God's goodness, and you're taking matters into your own hands. And that's what temptation is really all about. It's not about your self-control. It's really a matter of faith and trust. I want to feel good, and I want to feel good now. And by the way, when you're in the middle of a time of difficulty or adversity, that's when you are most susceptible. So that's why he kind of ties these two together. Because be aware, when you're going through a difficulty, and it's a downtime, and you're feeling bad, and you're dealing with all that emotionally. You just want to feel good even for a moment. And that's where you're tempted. And what you're really doing is short-circuiting God's work in your life. That's at the heart of all temptation. And, and then what he says is, now be careful because here's what people do. People kind of give excuses or try to deflect blame or put it on someone else. In fact, actually, remember the garden story when, when, when God comes to Adam and Eve and challenges him. And, and what does Adam say? God, it's the woman you put here. You, you made this happen. You put her. Everything was fine in this garden until she came along. You created her. You brought her here. She's the one that tempted me. It's all your fault. It's all her fault. It's all somebody else's fault. And people do that to this day. They say, well, if God made me this way, he gave me these desires. He put that hunger in me. He, he gave me these needs. And, and if, he, if, if God didn't want me to satisfy them, then why would he give me those needs? Or, or I know what the Bible says about sex outside of marriage, but we love each other and God brought us together. Why would we not want to consummate that? Why would we not do that? I mean, it's, it's, it's God. He put those desires within me. And I hear it over and over again. And my, all of my years as pastor, I have heard all kinds of excuses and try to put the blame somewhere else. And James says, no, no, no. Let's be honest. Bottom line is, each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and atta- enticed. It's not God. It's not somebody else. It's you. <laughs> it's me. It's, but God gave me those desires. Yeah. But it's our mismanagement of those desires. That's the problem. It's our twisting of those desires. It's that pursuing those desires at all costs. That's the problem. Deformed desires, out-of-control urges. That's what's really going on. And when we do, he says, there's another spiritual dynamic that comes into play. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. In the same way that that trials and and difficulties set in motion a, a spiritual dynamic that can lead to birth and maturity and life, he says, when you're facing temptation, understand that there is another spiritual dynamic, and this has negative consequences. This is the one that would lead you to sin. That the temptation, when you give in to that, it leads to sin. And sin, when it is conceived, it gives birth to death. So he says, at the bottom line, what you need to understand in both these situations is what is at stake. Where will this lead? And it's the choices that I make in those moments, those moments of temptation, those moments of trial and difficulty, it's the decisions that I make to act on what I say and what I think I believe that determines what becomes my core conviction. Because see, here's what happens. If I continually give in to temptation, if I continually to give in to those hungers and those desires and those appetites, you know, those, you know this about appetites, They only get bigger. The more you fill them, the bigger they get. Okay? And so he says, what happens is when you continue to fulfill that, and when you continue to deny that God can provide for you in the way that you really need, and in a way that is truly satisfying, and in a way that is right and proper, when you short-circuit that process, and you jump in, and you do it all on your own, what happens is over a period of time, as you do that over and over and over again, then what you held as a private conviction... You have so done it yourself, you get to the point where you don't believe God really cares anymore. You are so used to taking care of it on your own and doing it your own way that what happens is that what, become, what was a private conviction that could have become a core conviction really becomes a public conviction. That you go through the motions, you show up at church, you sing the songs, you nod your head at the preacher, you know, all those things. But deep down inside, you don't believe that's true. See, that's the death. That it leads to the death of your faith. The death of your soul. So understand what is at stake. James is saying if you want it to become a core conviction, then then you determine to obey God's ways even if it's hard. Believing that his ways really are good. Because that's what it goes to. This is what the bottom line is. Your faith will flourish When you focus on God's character, because ultimately that's what it's all about. What do I believe about God? A vibrant, genuine, living faith that is practical in transformation really is centered on the belief that what Jesus said really is true. That what God says in His Word about His ways really are the best way to live. That that it really does make sense. That it becomes not just something I believe in my head or I say from my mouth. It's something that becomes a core conviction of my life. That God really does know best. That God really does care about me. That God really is concerned about my life. And His ways and His timing and all of that is going to be perfect. And that's when it becomes perfect. A core conviction. So James tells us, if you're overwhelmed by circumstances and you don't understand and it doesn't make any sense to you, he says, pray and ask God for wisdom. But understand who you're asking. Ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Trust him. Even when it doesn't make sense. Ask for his direction. Ask for his wisdom. Because he gives it generously And if you're facing a temptation and you're tempted to short-circuit the process and just take care of it and satisfy that craving or that desire on your own, and you think God doesn't really care and He doesn't, you know, that He's holding out on you, He says, understand this about God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, it all rests on the character and nature of God and what you truly believe about Him. If you believe that God is good, that he does care about your life, that he is interested even in the little decisions that you make, and you begin to act on that, and you begin to act in obedience, trusting that, what happens is it becomes a core conviction. The things that have become core convictions in my life The natural way that I now live my life. And believe me, there's a lot that God's still working on. Okay? Don't get me wrong. But the things that have become those core convictions, they're not the things I learned in Sunday school as a kid. They are not even the things that I learned in theology classes in graduate school. They're the things that I learned in the experiences of my life. Now, I needed to learn them in Sunday school. Learning them in graduate school was really, really good. Knowing what God says, that's really, really important. But it becomes a core conviction When I make it a part of my life. And that is really the bottom line. And that's what James is interested in. That's what God is interested in. He's not interested in your public convictions. Or your private convictions. He's interested in your core convictions. And so James wrapped this whole thing up with this. He chose to give us birth. Through the word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits. Of all he created. What he's saying is, and and what I believe to be true is, what we truly long for deep down inside is core convictions. I think that's the faith that we really deeply desire. But how we respond in those situations is going to determine whether or not it happens. And here's something else I believe. I believe that those outside the faith who look at the church... That's what they're looking for. That's what they want to see. And that's what James is saying. That when this becomes a core conviction, it becomes a seed planted so deep in our lives that it grows and it starts producing seeds that gets planted in other people's lives. And we become the first fruits of a whole harvest that God wants to reap in our world. Would you bow your heads with me?